Today is part three in the series, A Life Worth Living. The first week of the series, we looked at relationships and how relationships make our lives worth living. And last week, we looked at hope. Without hope, life would seem to be utterly futile. What else makes life worth living? Let me begin with a story. My friend and colleague, Laura Schopp, shared with me a couple of years ago this episode from the Moth Radio Show. 21-year-old Ashok was studying engineering in college in India when some wealthy relatives of his who lived in India traveled to the United States and came back with a gift for him. It was something he had never in his life seen before, a little reddish-orange package that said Kit Kat on the outside. They presented this to Ashok and said, they eat these in America and it is amazing. Ashok took the candy bar and set it aside because the custom in India is that if you receive such a wonderful gift, you are obligated to share it with your roommate and his roommate was off at class. But he looked at it and he thought, I think I'll just have a little taste and so he took a little bite and wrapped it back up in the wrapper and he agreed it was amazing. And so a little later, he took one more little bite and you know how this goes. Before his roommate got home, there was just one little one inch section left and he looked at it and he thought, it's so small, how would we even share it? And so he ate it and he discarded the wrapper to hide the evidence. Now, he had never in his 21 years seen a Kit Kat before this day. But when his roommate came home a couple of hours later, his roommate had this enormous grin on his face. He was just bursting with joy. His eyes were twinkling, and he opened up this little napkin that he was carrying and unfolded it, and inside the napkin was a small one-inch piece of a Kit Kat. And his roommate didn't have any wealthy relatives who had, could travel to the United States, but his roommate had met a friend who shared with him a little piece of the Kit Kat. And so since they were both engineering students, they had rulers everywhere. And the roommate took the sharp edge of the ruler and measured the one inch piece into two half inch pieces and carefully cut it and put it out in front of Ashok and said, would you like some? And Ashok said, sure. And he took it and he ate it. And he said it was at that moment that God signaled to him, dude, you are on the wrong path in your life. Now, I suspect that when Jesus told this story about the sheep and the goats, that a lot of them felt the same way, like a goat. Ashok felt like a goat. Meanwhile, he looked at his roommate and thought, now there's a sheep. Jesus wakes up his disciples with this story about the sheep and the goats on a final judgment day. He draws a stark line. Those of you who shared with the least, over here on my right. Those of you who failed to share, over here on my left. Sheep, come on in, enjoy heaven. Goats, bye-bye, your suffering now begins. Ouch. Matthew 
curiously, chooses this story to sum up the entire gospel. This is the final teaching that Matthew offers to us, the words of Jesus, the final instruction that Jesus would give in Matthew's story prior to his death. Some Christians are surprised, even stunned, to think that Jesus would select behavior, not belief, as the criteria for entering heaven. Those welcomed by the king of heaven in this story are those who fed the hungry, visited the prisoners, welcomed the stranger. No one in this story checks at heaven's gate to say, do you believe that Jesus was the savior? Instead, the sheep come on in and enjoy the heavenly party because of the way they have lived their lives. The sheep are those like June Turley. I remember a month or so ago when we were planning June Turley's funeral, her kids, now grown, recalled what it was like to have June as their mom in the 60s. And they said all four of us kids would cram into the family car with mom and dad on Sundays, and then mom would insist that we would stop on the way to church and pick up two elderly ladies from the church who could no longer drive their own cars. Her kids learned from her to care for the least of these. Jesus, I think, also chooses sheep like Gloria McLaren, whose funeral we had here just a few weeks ago. Gloria was a part of the Tri-C Sunday School class, and one of June's Tri-C Sunday School classmates said, when my husband died, Gloria was the first person to show up at my house with the casserole. It was as if she had it ready already. And then, as soon as she got the news, she rushed over with this gift. Sheep, show up. Fred Craddock, the famous preacher and New Testament scholar, said that here in this passage, we are given the question that will be on the final exam. How did you respond to human need? Did you lead the food drive like young Caroline Shop? Did you shelve the books in the prison like Shirley Hansel? Did you deliver meals on wheels like Max DeWeese? Did you work in the mica clothing closet every Monday like Jackie Cunningham? Did you provide for the homeless veterans a home like Beverly Johnson? Did you dig a well in Nicaragua like Cardi Johansson? Did you join with the knitters in making 200 scarves for the homeless in Kansas City this season? In some ways, the sermon could end here. Life is worth living when we serve others. Done, over, go do it. But Jesus tells us that the sheep and the goats had one thing in common. They were both startled surprised, astonished. The sheep say, when was it that we saw you hungry and fed you? And the goats say, when was it that we saw you hungry and didn't feed you? Both of them are surprised. They missed seeing what was right in front of them, the face of God. Who knew? Those who gave millions of dollars to the children's hospital wing said, when did we see you sick 
And Jesus says, oh, I, I was one of those children with cancer in that hospital. And those who forgot to write a letter to our senator about legislation that hurts the poor, we say, when did we see you sick and ignore you? And Jesus says, oh, I was one of those children whose health benefits were cut. I still get surprised myself. 27 years ago, when I went on my first international mission trip to Guatemala, we were there to build a Habitat for Humanity house in a remote village with no running water or electricity. We dug the foundation, splitting rocks by hand with a hammer, and it was 110 degrees in the shade. We spent the week staying in the homes of two Guatemalan families who shared their teeny tiny already overcrowded homes with us and cooked for us rising at 4 a.m. to make tortillas for us fresh each day before it became too hot to cook. One afternoon, we soft gringos took a break. We decided we'd go to the beach and cool off a bit. Our vehicle broke down at the beach and it was very late when we got back for dinner. We were astounded when we pulled our little pickup truck, the only vehicle for miles and miles. We pulled into the little compound where these two houses were and the entire family was sitting there waiting for us to eat dinner. They refused to eat until all of us had been served. I remember that night sitting around the dinner table in silence, clearly aware that we were not the ones bringing the love of Jesus into that village, but that we were the guests of Jesus. Those poor and humble people served us not only food, but grace. But I still forget I have been on dozens of mission trips across this country, Oklahoma, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. I have been across the globe to India, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and I am still surprised every time that we don't really take Jesus there, but find him there in the faces of the poor and the lame and the sick. A few years ago, when my son Connor was an early teen, I think he must have been about 12 or maybe 13 and Joe or somebody else here on the staff was leading one of those Saturday Grace at Work days and Connor joined with the youth group that day to go off and do whatever project they were doing in Kansas City to help the needy and I went on another project and my husband Dave went on another project and a little after noon that day we gathered back here at the church and headed home and I remember driving home I remember exactly how the sunlight was hitting the car and I remember which block we were passing when my son was just effusive joyfully sharing what a great experience he had had that day helping others and when he finally took a breath Dave said well I had a great experience too and then I shared about my experience and we sat there in our backyard grilling hamburgers and talking about the good day, but there was some kind of palpable joy. And I can't even really explain it. I can only imagine that somehow we had all been changed. There was a peacefulness in our togetherness and nobody wanted for anything. In the Gospel of Matthew, 
Matthew doesn't really spend his gospel instructing us, but rather describing to us how life is. For example, Matthew doesn't say, go out and be the light of the world. Matthew says, you are the light of the world. And Matthew doesn't say, go and be the salt of the earth. Matthew says, you are the salt of the earth. And so maybe here in this story of the sheep and the goats, he isn't really saying, be kind to the little ones, but rather, when you are kind to the least of these, you will experience heaven now. Maybe, maybe what makes life worth living is not serving. Maybe what makes life worth living is seeing the face of Jesus right now, today, which will happen when we stop being so oblivious to our surroundings and start serving the least of these, the poor, the lonely, the lost. Reverend John Buchanan said that God's favorite project is to teach you and me the fundamental lesson, the secret, the truth, that to love is to live. We find joy in this life not by trying to earn our way into heaven. We find joy in this life when we give ourselves away lavishly, generously. Last month, Sarah R., the daughter of my friends Tom and Carol R., was ordained at Village Presbyterian Church. At that service, Dr. Roger Nishioka preached Sarah's ordination sermon. He had been one of her professors in seminary and now serves at Village Church. The story he shared captured for me this experience of serving one another and finding in the midst of that serving heavenly joy just in the process. The story takes place at a Presbyterian church on the East Coast. One Sunday, the pastor in this little church noticed that there was a visitor, a young 20-something man visiting the congregation. And so after worship, she beelined it to him, and she chatted with him, and she could tell by the look on his face that this would likely be the last time she would ever see him in church because he was a good 50 years younger than the majority of the congregation. But he explained that he had grown up Presbyterian, was new in town, and was looking to connect. The pastor said to him before he walked out the door that day, what can I pray for when I pray for you? And he said, well, I'm actually studying for the bar exam, and if I don't pass the bar exam, I won't be able to keep my job, and if I can't keep my job, I can't even stay in my apartment, and I would have to move home. So if you could pray for that, I would appreciate it. Later that week, the pastor was praying for this young man to pass the bar when she had an idea. So she called him, and she said, you know, we have a man here in the church that I think might be able to help you with the bar exam. Would you like for me to have him call you? And the guy said, well, sure. And the man did call him, and he accepted an invitation to have dinner at that man's house on Tuesday night. And as they sat around the dinner table chatting, the elderly man said, you know, 
I've prepared a study guide for you. And the guy looked at the study guide and he said, this is fantastic. This will really help me. Thank you so much. I really need to study. And the elderly man's wife said, well, if you want, you can come over to our house for dinner every Tuesday and then just stay and study. And he said, well, I would love that. Well, when he passed the bar exam with a very high score, the elderly couple hosted a celebration at their home. Several church members came along with the pastor. And at that party, the young man went over to the pastor and said, you know, that study guide he gave me was great. It really made a difference. I'm not sure how he knew what I needed, but I was well prepared. And the pastor looked at him sort of stunned and she said, well, it should have. No one knows the law better than he does. And the young man said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, come here. And she took the young man into the elderly man's study. And she said, you don't know who he is? And he said, well, what do you mean? And then he looked at the pictures on the wall and he realized that this man was the retired Supreme Court Justice of that state. The young man was stunned. A few years later, the young man got married, and the elderly man, I think, was now in his 90s, and he stood up in the wedding as one of the groomsmen. At the wedding reception, the pastor approached the elderly man. She said, I think it's so neat the way you two formed a friendship, and I think it's great that you were a groomsman in the wedding. And the older man said, knowing that young man and standing up in his wedding has been one of the greatest joys of my life. I am not sure how God will use each of you to serve the least of these, but I am sure that we will all be surprised when God shows up.